This morning, I'm continuing in my sermon series through the book of Acts, and so far, a lot has happened, right? Jesus has risen from the dead. He spent time over 40 days with his disciples, and then he ascended to heaven and told them to wait in Jerusalem, and that he was going to send the promised Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, uh, is the presence of God that's going to come and live inside every believer. Pretty important, because again, if Jesus had not ascended, he might still be on earth, but he'd be in one location, and you'd have to probably get a plane ticket and wait in line to meet with him or wait till he comes on tour. But now that he's ascended and sent his Holy Spirit, God's presence is inside every believer. Amazing. And something we take for granted, I know. But... So he pours out the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, and you have these disciples who are speaking in other languages, the wonders of God to everyone in the crowd that's gathered. And they're all wondering, what does this mean? So last week we looked at Peter, how he explains what it means by telling them about what happened with Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and how now God is pouring out his Holy Spirit, giving his presence to everyone who believes in Jesus. And the people who hear are cut to the heart, it says, they say, what shall we do? And he says, repent and be baptized, repent and believe. Turn from your sin and self-centeredness to faith in Jesus, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. You will have eternal life. And it says, on that day, the church grew from about 120 to about 3,120. It says 3,000 were added to their number that day. Incredible. So where do they go from there, right? What do you do when you all of a sudden have 3,000 new converts? And so we're going to read Acts 2, 37 to 47, beginning just by looking at the end of that. Uh, section I just talked about, and then looking at what happened there in the early church. And it's an incredible vision, if you've never read this passage, of what a community filled with the Holy Spirit can look like. So let's read Acts 2, 37 to 47 this morning, if I can get this to work. There we go. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is God's word. Let me pray before we continue. God, we pray that you would open our ears, open our hearts, that you would speak to us, help us to understand what this passage meant and what it means for us today. Transform us, we pray, as we spend this time together as your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's an incredible vision of a community that has been completely transformed by the Holy Spirit as he comes bringing people from all these different backgrounds together and uniting them. And I want to go through just three features in particular that we see in this early church and what it means for us today. So the first is this. You see that it was a learning community. The first thing it tells us about this 
community is that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayer. And every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. So every day, they're meeting together, and they're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Those are those 12 disciples there. They want to learn more and more. They've just come. They just learned about this Jesus who died, rose again. They've received the Holy Spirit, and now they are on fire. All they want to do is know more about him. And again, think about, you know, if you've ever fallen in love with anyone in your life. This is a natural response. If you meet someone and you love them, you want to know everything you can about them. You want to know what makes them happy. You want to hear their story, their history. You want to know their characteristics. What are they like in different situations? This is a natural thing. When you fall in love, you want to know everything you can about someone. That's what we're talking about here. This is not just going to school. This is they have come into a relationship with God, with Jesus who died for them. And they want to know everything they can about him. They want to know him. And the thing is that even though even like a five-year-old can come to a true and saving faith, the most wisest person will never plumb the depths of what it means to know God. Think of Romans 11, 33 to 34. Paul says, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Just can never get to the bottom of who God is. I know some people have asked me, like, how do you come up with stuff to preach on a Sunday? I'm like, I mean, there's, there's no end of things to talk about, no end of things to teach on when it comes to God. Never going to run out. And I think that's part of what heaven, I mean, I've, I'm speaking of things I don't know, but I think that's part of what heaven is going to be about, is continually learning more about God forever and ever, because you can never exhaust who he is. I know when I came to faith at 18 as a freshman at UConn, I mean, I'm, I'm thankful that I have that before and after to look at because one thing that happened is that the Bible went from being this dry book that I never read and never cared to read to all of a sudden, all I wanted to do was know the Bible. I wanted to get my hands on as many books as I could about God. I just wanted to know him and who he was. And it wasn't because someone told me I should. It wasn't because someone was telling me that as a, as a Christian, I need to read the Bible. It was because God had put his Holy Spirit in me, replaced the heart of stone with a heart of flesh, a heart that responded to him, that wanted to know him. And there was this desire to know God and to get involved in community where people could teach me about God and Jesus and what it meant to know him. That is the first feature we see of this early church. They came to faith and they just became this learning community. They wanted to know. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They gathered together as often as they could. And I encourage you, whether you're at home or here, to devote yourself to knowing God. To come on Sunday, to listen to sermons and podcasts, to gather together for Bible study and community and community groups with other believers. To read on your own daily. That's the first feature we see of the community that is filled with the Holy Spirit. They are a learning community. They just, they've, they've, they've learned about the God who loves them. They've fallen in love with him and they just want to know everything there is to know about him. Second thing you see is that it's a loving community. Not just about the head knowledge here, but it's about love for each other. Again, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. 
Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the fellowship of all the people. So they're devoted not only to the apostles' teaching, but to the fellowship. Koinonia is the Greek word, which comes from the root word meaning generosity. It's this generosity of spirit, of life with each other. They just want to share life with each other. Again, this is not just I came to faith and I'm going to go my own way and do my own thing in my own place by myself. This is I want to share this with others. I want to love others. I want to be loved by others. I want to do this in community. Not only to the point of of reading the Bible together, but it says of sharing everything they had with those who were in need. That wherever there was someone who was in need, they wanted to sell what they had to meet those needs. It's incredible. Makes me think of a couple passages. One is 1 Thessalonians 2.8. Paul said, we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. See that? It's not just that we are in a learning community together. We are in school together, you know, on the same trajectory towards God, but we are sharing life with each other. Wherever there's a need, we want to meet it. We're going to love each other, meet with each other, spend time together. In 1 John 3.17, where he says, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Again, that is the kind of fellowship we're talking about here, the kind of love, the kind of community that's filled with the Holy Spirit. What is going on here? I mean, what's going on is that when God puts his Holy Spirit in you, one of the things that happens is that you are adopted as a child of God. You're adopted as a child of God, which means, look around the room, you have a lot of brothers and sisters. That these are now family. I don't know if you feel that way when you look around the room. I don't know if that's something that, that has ever resonated with you. That when you look around the room, you say, that's my sister, that's my brother. That we are family. We, are all, we have all been adopted as children of God. And so when there's someone in need, it's not just that there's someone in need, right? My sister's in need. My brother's in need. That's what we're talking about here. This is family. That is what happens when the Holy Spirit enters a people. Jesus put it this way. I'm sorry, First Romans 8, 16. Paul said, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And then as Jesus put it, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak with him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak with you. He replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Incredible. I mean, I know that Christianity, you know, you think it's all about like family values and all of that, but you hear Jesus and he's talking about family values. It's not just like, you know, the people that you live with. Family values is your brothers and sisters in Christ, in God's family. That's family values. He says, looking around, he says, that's my brother, that's my sister, that's my mother. Anyone who does the will of the Father is related to me. They are part of my family. Again, I look back at becoming a believer at 18, and, and I was at UConn. I got involved with this group called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and I remember distinctly, like, all of a sudden feeling like I had this depth of connection to people that I just wasn't used to growing up, wasn't used to with friends growing up, that all of a sudden it felt like I had brothers and sisters on that kind of level. There was a family connection there. 
And I encourage you again. It means if someone in the church is in the hospital, that means your brother's in the hospital, your sister's in the hospital. If someone is without material needs, it means your brother does not have material needs. Your sister does not have material needs. And how can we together care for each other that way? This is why we have a benevolent fund as a church. If you are in need, you can contact myself, one of the elders, and say, can you help? I have a need. And we have a benevolent fund to meet needs in our church. And some give to that, and we give out of that to take care of people. And it doesn't have to go through that. If you are aware of someone who's in need, you can care for them yourself. We have people who make meals for people all the time as part of a meals ministry or just on their own, who give rides to people, who visit people. Again, these are your brothers and sisters. We're not just a learning community. We are a loving community. The third feature is this. They are a praying and worshiping community. Once again, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. That breaking of bread there, of course, is they're celebrating communion together. Jesus said, you know, do this in remembrance of me. Eat this bread. Drink this cup. Do this to remember that I died for you. And so they gathered together to break bread and for prayer, to spend time in prayer, praying that God's kingdom would come, to pray for each other. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. You see, they gathered together formally in the temple to worship together. They gathered together informally in people's homes. Again, this is something we try to model as a church. We gather together on a Sunday, but we know that there's not necessarily a depth of relationship there all the time. But we also have community groups where we encourage people to get together in smaller communities or to get together one-on-one to reach out to each other. Because it's not just about the formal, it's about that informal relationship that we share with each other. And more than that, more than just being a community that, that, where people learn, where we love each other, we are a worshiping and praying community. Remember what Jesus said, it is written, my house is to be called a house of prayer. He said that quoting from Isaiah. He said, my house is to be called a house of prayer for all nations. More than anything else, more than a house of preaching, more than a house of singing, more than a house of fellowship and potlucks, right? My house is to be called a house of prayer. This is a place where people come to meet with God. My house is to be called a house of prayer. Now, let me just get to the heart of this passage because one of the things that is kind of an easy thing to do as a pastor, as a preacher, but I don't think it's the best way to do it is you kind of leave people with like next steps, right? So, so do I need to join a community group? Do I need to spend more time in prayer? Do I need to do daily Bible reading? And, and if you take that approach that over, over a span of a year, you're going to wind up with a lot of to-dos, right? And you're going to feel like church and, and Christianity is about like a whole list of things I'm supposed to do. But there's a heart of the matter that, that is even more important. And, and I want to talk, I want to quote from C.S. Lewis from his book, Reflection on the Psalms, because what we're looking at here is a community that's been filled by the Holy Spirit, right? And when the Spirit fills you, this is, these are the things that happen. That there's a desire to know God more. There's a desire to love your brothers and sisters and see them that way. There's a desire to worship and praise, to pray, that comes out of being filled with the Holy Spirit, that comes out of knowing God. It's not a to-do list. It's not like they came to faith and then they followed the apostles' to-do list. No, there was an inner motivation that they had towards God. 
And C.S. Lewis writes this in his book, Reflections on the Psalms. He says, we all despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, or delightfulness. We despise even more the crowd of people around every dictator, every millionaire, every celebrity who gratify that demand. Worse still was the statement put into God's own mouth, whoso offereth me thanks and praise, he honoreth me. Psalm fifty twenty three. It is hideous, hideously like saying, what I most want is to be told that I am good and great. He's re- Okay, so this is the beginning of this quote. There's a lot more to come. But he's here talking about how that conception, what is this about this God who wants us to worship him? You know, why does God want us to worship him and praise him? Is he like egotistical? Is he self-centered? Is he insecure? Like we, we hate it when humans want people to worship them. Why do, we, why do we serve a God who wants us to worship him? He goes on to say this, but the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless, sometimes even if, shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. The world rings with praise, lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmist in telling everyone to praise God are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. Does that make sense? He's saying, listen, praise is the most natural thing to us. When you find something that you love and enjoy, you want to praise it and you want to encourage others and invite others to praise it with you. You watch an amazing movie, what do you want to do? As soon as it ends, you want to just talk about how great it was. And then you want to call up friends and say, you should watch that. Have you seen it? You should watch this movie with me. This is what social media is all about, in case you haven't realized, right? The like button and the share button. You find something that you like, you like it, you share it. It says, that's what God, it's what's going on here with God. That's what praise is all about. That's what this early community is all about. They found God, they love God, and they want to share God. It's as simple as that. He goes on to say this. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch. To hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. The worthier the object, the more intense this delight would be. If it were possible for a created soul fully to appreciate that is to love and delight in the worthiest object of all and simultaneously at every moment to give this delight perfect expression, then that soul would be in supreme beatitude. I hope this is making sense to you. This is the heart of what I'm talking about here, not to leave you with a bunch of to-dos that you're supposed to do, but I'm talking about love of God, the greatest of all, 
that all of our loves point to, that when you come to know him, when he fills you with his spirit, it transforms you into someone who just wants to know everything there is to know about him, to express your praise and delight in him, to share that with others, to join with others in encouraging and praising and loving and sharing. Last part of the quote, it is along these lines that I find it easiest to understand the Christian doctrine that heaven is a state in which angels now and men hereafter are perpetually employed in praising God. To see what the doctrine really means, we must suppose ourselves to be in perfect love with God, drunk with, drowned in, dissolved by that delight, which far from remaining pent up within ourselves is incommunicable, hence hardly tolerable. Bliss flows out from us incessantly again in effortless and perfect expression. Our joy no more separable from the praise in which it liberates and utters itself than the brightness a mirror receives is separable from the brightness it sheds. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, but we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. You may need to hear that one or read that one again. I know that was a long quote. But I hope you understand why I share this here. Is because this early church community here, what was going on here is this. It's love being captured by the love of God, transformed by the love of Jesus. Because when that happens, this happens naturally. Community happens naturally. You want to learn everything there is to know about God. You become a learning community. You become a loving community. Because out of that flows a desire to love the people that he has brought into your life. To care for others the way he's cared for you. To serve others the way he's served you. And most importantly, worship and prayer flows out. Because there's just a desire to just glorify and praise him for what he has done. For who he is. In the same way that you just want to praise a favorite author, a great book, a movie, whatever it is that leads your soul to praise and to share it with others. That's what happens here. I mean, the incredible thing is that, you know, it ends with this line, right? It ends with, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And I'm sure they might have been going out and sharing their faith, but it doesn't say that here. All it says is the Lord added to their number daily, that the community was so attractive in the way they loved each other, in the joy, in the, in the unity, that more people wanted to join. More people wanted to be a part of it. And this just speaks to my heart because I don't, you know, we could be a church that attracts people because we have incredible music, right? We could be a church that attracts people because of our branding, right? Or because of our building. There's all kinds of things that we could pour our efforts into to say, Wow, you know, look at that cool. That's the cool church. We want to go there. I could take off the tie and, you know, dress more like a millennial. And... <laughs> but my heart is that our church would be known for its love. Amen? Like that people would come and feel loved. People say that is just a loving community. I've never met a people who love like they do. How about that for your branding? How about that for the message? Look at how they love. And I know 
we have a long way to go, right? Not just our church, but the church. I know a lot of people do not think of the church as a loving place to our shame, right? And for that, we need to repent. We need to fall back in love with God and be transformed by him that we might be the most loving place and the most loving people there are. This is what happens when the Holy Spirit fills a community. This is what happens when the Holy Spirit transforms lives. You wind up with a people who just want to know God, devote themselves to learning more and more about him because they love him. They want to know everything about him. You wind up with a community of love that loves each other, that is, sees each other as brothers and sisters, not some guy over there and some lady over there. But these are my brothers, these are my sisters, and wherever they are in need, I'm there for them. And it's a praying and worshiping community. They have found something to delight in that they love, that they can't stop enjoying, can't stop praising, and they just want to invite more and more people to share that with them. Again, we have a long way to go, but this is, a, this is a quite a vision to have, this vision of Acts 2, 42 to 47, of what a community filled by the Holy Spirit can be like. So why don't we just spend a little time in prayer? And again, I'm going to lead off in prayer, and then I want to encourage you, if you want to pray for our church along these lines of what we just read and listened to today, if you want to pray for our church, for revival, for God to fill us with his spirit, for, for God to make us that kind of loving community, then I encourage you, pray aloud after I pray. And then we'll respond in worship. Father, we confess to you that we have fallen short of your intention for a church. We have a lot to learn about how to love each other, how to love our neighbor in the way that you loved us. We pray that you would bring revival to our hearts. Fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. Transform our hearts that we might be more like you. Thank you, Lord.